those of us who would describe ourselves as followers of Jesus, I wonder what kind of reaction you get when you tell people that you are a Christian. I've experienced all sorts of responses, some people being interested in my faith, they're like, oh, tell me more, why do you believe what you believe, and opens up a conversation. Um, some people are surprised, they say, you don't really look like what I thought a Christian was supposed to look like, certainly not a pastor anyway. And uh, some people are a little wary. Once they discover, oh, you're a Christian, they suddenly turn into somebody else and they start to be on their very best behavior. And uh, maybe they're more careful with their language suddenly and then the jokes they're telling change or they stop telling jokes, become a bit more serious, minding their P's and Q's. Almost as if they feel that they have to act a certain way because they think Christians are a bit holier than thou and uh, maybe a bit judgmental, maybe condemning of people who are uh, a bit imperfect. And I suspect that's because some people who haven't encountered Jesus assume that God is a bit grumpy and condemning and judgmental of imperfect people. But the God we read about in the Bible, far from being grumpy and condemning, is warm, merciful, welcoming, loving, and kind. And if those who think God is wagging his finger and wanting to condemn us for our behavior would read the Gospels, the four books in the Bible that talk about the life and the ministry of Jesus, they might actually be astonished at how magnetic Jesus was to those who knew their life was a mess. Those of you who were here a few years ago will have heard me refer to Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. And in this book, he recounts a true story. He actually opens the book with this story, which is kind of shocking, but pretty profound. And it's a true story about a friend of his who works with, he describes it's the down and out in Chicago. A prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me that she had been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They'd just make me feel worse. And Yancey writes this, what struck me about my friend's story is that women, much like the prostitute, this prostitute, fled towards Jesus, not away from him. The worse a person felt about herself, the more likely she saw Jesus as a refuge. Has the church lost that gift? Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel welcome among his followers. What has happened? The more I pondered this question, the more I felt drawn to one word as the key. That word is grace. 
The church can so easily be perceived by those outside as a place that you go to after you've sorted your life out, after you've cleaned up your act and not before. I believe Trent Vineyard is known as a place where you can belong before you're sorted. And I would love us to continue to be known in increasing measure as a grace-filled church. That's what I want to talk about this evening, God's amazing grace. So what is grace? Well, it is undeserved, unmerited favor. Something free of charge, it's a gift. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases uh, the word grace in Acts 20, 24. And so in some translations, it's simply grace. He translates it, incredibly extravagant generosity. Someone said, mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. For example, in Ephesians 2, it tells us that despite our living lives where we did, to quote Eugene Peterson, the message there, what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it with no regard for our creator, his response, far from losing his temper and doing away with a whole lot of us, was immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. And his desire is to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Grace is not just what is known as saving grace, being forgiven our sin and rescued from the effects of that sin. It's to be the ongoing experience of those who turn to Jesus. In Ephesians 1 verse 8, the Apostle Paul talks about the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. In chapter 2 verse 7, he writes about the incomparable riches of God's grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. John the Apostle in his gospel, chapter one, verse 16 says, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another, receiving what we don't deserve again and again and again. In his book, Jeff Bridges' book, uh, Transforming Grace, he likens this phrase to the experience of watching the sea from the beach. One wave has hardly receded before another one arrives. They just keep coming from this inexhaustible supply. And so it is with the grace of God given to us. And that's been my personal experience through life, walking with God, uh, just again and again blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace. It's been the experience of this church for 21 years. One manifestation of God's favor uh, has hardly receded before another manifestation of the favor of God arrives. Grace upon grace. We're talking about the favor of God, the gifts that God gives, the blessings that he showers upon us, the wonderful things that we don't deserve poured out in our lives. And as well as being a gift we receive from God, grace is transformative. It changes us, it works in and through our lives. So how do we know that grace is at work in our life? I'm gonna look at five areas uh, with varying degrees of length. Firstly, because we find ourselves expressing gratitude 
The Apostle Paul, who wrote many of the letters contained in the New Testament, was before he was a follower of Jesus. He was a Pharisee, a high-ranking member of Judaism, who wanted to stamp out this emerging, it was known as a sect within Judaism, these Nazarenes, these followers of Jesus Christ. And he so vehemently opposed the followers of Jesus that he stood by guarding the cloaks of those who stoned one of the early believers, Stephen, to death, approving of his execution. His name was originally Saul. It was changed at his conversion. And we read in Acts, in chapter 8, verse 3, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. This guy was bad news. Now, I don't know how you're feeling about your own life today. Maybe you're here today thinking, I'm not sure my life is really sorted enough to be in this place, to be here. I've got this shameful secret or not so secret addiction. I've got these issues, which means that if people really knew, I really wouldn't be accepted here. I don't think I'm good enough to fit in. Well, let me ask you, how bad in comparison to Saul do you fear? Do you feel? Have you approved of the death of others? Have you dragged people and thrown them in prison? Saul was feared by Christians, and yet he was shown grace. He was rescued and saved by meeting the risen Jesus, and he never got over it. In his letters to the churches contained in the New Testament, Paul uses the word grace 80 times. He was just intoxicated by it, so grateful for it, wanting nothing more than to communicate the grace of God to everyone who didn't know about it. And he said in Acts 20, 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. The task of telling as near as possible the whole Gentile world, the you know, non-Jewish world at the time, about God's grace. We can sometimes, I think, take so easily for granted the grace of God. We are saved by grace, we live by grace, the primary and most appropriate response is gratitude. And Paul writes in Colossians chapter two, so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith that you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. That's the first evidence that we're in touch with the grace of God. We'll be overflowing with thankfulness, with gratitude. Secondly, there will be a response in our life. A response, Lord, you have, you know, given the way you are with me, how might I respond to you? You've given me so much, I want to give something back to you. And that would be the case with love. You know, you've so loved me, I want to respond with love for you, God, and also love for others. To love those who are hard to love when I'd rather not be loving towards them. It'll manifest itself in obedience, doing those things we know God wants us to do and saying no to those things that we know God doesn't want us to do. In service, something that happens in the heart. Lord, you have so blessed me, I just want to bless others. With my life, generally, Lord, you've given me every heartbeat. You know, every breath we have is a gift from God. And in 
response to him giving us life, we want to give him our life and our career and our money. If we are truly in touch with the extravagant generosity of God towards us, we will find our lives responding to that. Thirdly, attitude. Firstly, our attitude concerning ourselves. If we think, you know, actually, I think I'm pretty sorted and, you know, I'm a really good person. God's kind of lucky to have me on his team. Then we really have failed to grasp the grace of God. We need an awareness that we are saved by grace. We are messed up, walking wounded, who are embraced by the grace of God. Paul writes in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom, he says, I am the worst. Paul, this incredible missionary, he says, I am the worst of sinners. And it wasn't that Paul went on and continued a life of sin. He moved on from opposing Jesus and and approving of the death of his followers followers of Jesus and devoting his life then to um, the gospel. (laughs) He devoted his life to the gospel, communicating the gospel of grace, and being killed for doing so himself. A massive turnaround, a massive transformation. But he never lost sight of the fact it was all about grace that he was still made of flesh. His sinful nature was still very much a part of him and he still felt himself to be a wretched sinner. And it was only by the grace of God that he was able to live out his new identity as a saint. If we're truly in touch with God's grace, one evidence of that is that there will be an attitude of, of honesty about our brokenness. The opposite, actually, to the way Christians can be perceived, that holier-than-thou attitude, a self-awareness. The Pharisees in Jesus' time simply were not self-aware. They thought themselves thoroughly well-behaved, and yet Jesus had a right go at them for their delusion, for their arrogance, for their pride. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus tells a parable about two men, a Pharisee, and a tax collector who both went to the temple to pray. And Jesus describes that Pharisee as being very self-righteous and he stands up and he thanks God that he's not like that awful tax collector, that sinner. And in contrast, the tax collector, who was self-aware, recognized his need for God and he said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says in Luke 18, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now it's fair to say that I am a more mature Christian now than I used to be. I'm more careful to avoid sin than I used to be, but maturity is not feeling more and more self-righteous, but includes growing in our awareness of our shortcomings, of our of our falling short of the standards and the glory of God. You know, I am a recipient of grace, as are most of you here, a recipient of grace if we follow Jesus. I am a saint who sins, and so are you, if you're a Christian. The people who thought they had it all together were repelled by Jesus. 
too proud, too unself-aware to realize their need of his grace. He had come to save those who were aware of their need of him. That's attitude towards ourselves, and then attitude towards others is also a great revealer of whether we've really experienced God's grace. What's our attitude towards people who haven't got it all together? Drug addicts and people involved with crime and just broken people in so many ways. When Jesus walked the earth and met such people, his arms were open wide to them. And yet today, as we heard in that initial story in the book, many find that Jesus' people, the church, rejects them. Someone I know who had spent time in prison came to faith while he was in prison, and when he got out, he went and found himself a church and went in, enjoyed the service. And as he was leaving after the service, he went to introduce himself and thank the leader of the service for, you know, for the service. And he briefly revealed in that conversation that he had recently come out of prison. And the leader's response, he told me, was along the lines of, we don't welcome people like you here. And disillusioned and hurting, he left that place. I think it took him a little while to find himself here. And uh, he came in here at Trent, and I'm delighted that here he found grace. A non-judgmental judgmental acceptance of his past, acceptance of his weaknesses. He was a broken man. And even after an episode of appalling behavior here, stealing from us, despite there being some necessary discipline, he continued to be loved and accepted among us. We're trying to imitate Jesus. And, you know, Jesus was perfect. He was in many ways a bit like a Pharisee in terms of the very best of their qualities. He was a rabbi, a teacher. He was careful to live a pure life, a righteous life. And yet, at the same time, he hung out with people, the so-called righteous despised, and lumped in with them. He was accused of being like them. In Matthew 11, we're told actually by Jesus that he was called a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was his reputation. This man's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of the wrong kind of people. He ate and he drank with them, a sign in that culture especially, even more than in our culture, of friendship, of acceptance. He was known as a friend of the sorts of people the Pharisees thought he should be an enemy of. If someone here walks in here thinking, I'd be made to feel worse than I already do, we want to surprise them. We want them to find love and friendship and belonging and grace. And if you're visiting today and coming in search of grace, my sincere hope is that you will find it here. You might ask, well, that, does that mean that we don't care about sin? that we believe that people can just go on sinning without restraint because grace will, will cover that? No. We're no softer on sin, I hope, than Jesus was. We're called to live holy lives. His grace is freely given to us as we receive it, recognizing that we are broken, but we come to God repentant, which means turning away from living life our own way and turning towards living life his way. Jesus wasn't soft on sin. His invitation was always, come as you are, recognizing that I love you too much to leave you as you are. 
Some of you will be familiar with the biblical story of a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and a group of religious people had gathered to stone her to death, which is what happened in that culture at that time. And when Jesus encountered this group, he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And in response, this crowd drifted away until there was nobody left. And uh, he asked her, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. So having encountered me, my grace is sufficient for everything that's gone on, but now change. Leave that life and follow me. So gratitude, response, attitude towards ourselves and others. Another evidence that we really are in touch with the grace of God is confidence. Life for the Apostle Paul was extremely hard. So once he'd come to faith, once he started to preach the gospel of grace, he was imprisoned, uh, he was beaten, he was whipped, all sorts of terrible things happened to him. And he also had this ongoing difficulty which he struggled with, which he called his thorn in the flesh. And in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 8, Paul tells us that he pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn away from him. We don't know specifically what it was, number of theories about it. But the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul knew that these difficulties helped him to rely less on himself and more on God. God allowed Paul to be utterly aware of his weakness so that he would experience God's sustaining strength in his life. And he had this confidence that God's grace is sufficient. And you and I can have that same confidence that in the hard times, when we feel weak, as well as in the good times, that God will, will be there for us. He will give us sufficient to get us through. And his power is made perfect in our weakness. It's displayed much more in our weakness than it would be in our strength. If we had it all together and we were like really omnicompetent, well, people say, well, that person's wonderful. But they wouldn't see the grace of God actually changing a life uh, to glorify him. You and I can walk with God knowing that he will provide for us through the riches of his glorious grace. We're confident too in our access to God, the God who created the universe, perfectly holy. We have access to him through what Jesus has done, the blood of Christ. And in Hebrews 4 verse 16 it says this, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can be confident that we will find grace as we approach God's throne of grace. We can have confidence that we're completely accepted. We don't need to strive to perform, to be something, to be good. His grace is freely available to us. This grace sounds pretty amazing, and it is. Those of you who are of advanced age, as I am, may remember an event called Live Aid. It was 32 years ago, 1985. Uh, Bob Geldof and Midgeyer organized this concert across a number of stadiums, particularly Wembley Stadium and JFK Stadium in Philadelphia, with some acts performing in other venues like Sydney and Moscow. And they put it on to raise funds for uh, famine relief in Ethiopia. 
It was one of the largest scale satellite link-ups and television broadcasts still of all time. And it was billed as the day the music changed the world. A 16-hour concert with the biggest bands in the world playing. And Debbie and I watched much of that 16 hours on television. And some of you, most of you here will never have heard of this, but the, a little cassette player with a wire coming out of it and a little microphone. And so we had the television on reasonably loud and then we, we said it. And when an artist or a song came on that we thought we would like, we waited until the right moment and then pressed play record at the same time like that. And this little thing called a cassette tape captured it. A lot of rewinding and, and just playing it and stopping it at the right point when it went into a song we didn't want. And over the course of this time, we recorded on a C60, which in old language, that's basically a cassette tape, which is 60 minutes long on two sides, we uh, captured the best of Live Aid. And then we played it in our Ford Capri <laughs> for years until it was completely worn out. We just loved that, uh, that live concert. Now, what would be, do you think, the song or the artist, what would be chosen as the finale? After 16 hours as the finale at Wembley Stadium, what would the music that changed the world culminate in? After about 16 hours of live music with five minutes left, there was silence. A majestic African-American woman wearing a flowing kaftan was followed by a single white spotlight as she walked to the center of the stage. No musicians, just Jesse Norman, an opera singer unrecognized by most of us. And in the silence, a few people in the crowd started to heckle and call out for previous performers. And then, a cappella, she began to sing, slower than I've ever heard it sung. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind but now I see. She sang the whole song, a song written about 250 years ago by a man called John Newton. He was a slave trader, a really nasty man, and then he had a conversion experience and he came to Christ. And he went on, just like the Apostle Paul, his life flipped and changed. He went on to work with William Wilberforce in the successful fight to abolish slavery. He knew that he was an utterly wretched man, not unlike Paul, who had persecuted the church. He knew that he had been forgiven so much. 72,000 fans in the stadium fell completely silent. One and a half billion viewers across a hundred countries listened and watched. And some of you are old enough to remember it. It was one of the most stunning moments of television history. Firstly, it tapped into the reason for Live Aid. People paid to go to a concert, but its purpose was actually to demonstrate grace and love and support for the starving in Ethiopia. Something of God's heart was being expressed that day as performers gave their time for free and people gave millions to save people in need of saving. And secondly, the words spoke of God's amazing grace freely given to us. And whether or not people realized it, because it is the greatest truth in the universe, the truth of that resonated somewhere deep 
within people's hearts. Gratitude, response, attitude, confidence, and lastly, an evidence that we are in touch with the grace of God, and this one may surprise you, is effort. It might surprise you because effort sounds an awful lot like works. We're saved by grace, not by works. We don't earn our way into God's approval. We don't add add anything at all to the price that was paid for our salvation. Grace fully saves us. There's nothing we can do that will cause God to love us any more than he does. And incidentally, there's nothing we can do that will cause him to love us any less than he does. However, we can grow in our experience of grace and the measure of grace that flows in and through our lives. Some of you were here last month when I spoke about growing in spiritual maturity. And we looked at Peter's encouragement to us to make every effort in our spiritual lives. And in the same way, there are ways that we can put in effort to grow in grace and foster the flow of grace in our lives. We can place ourselves in a position to receive more grace through what is known as indirect effort. Putting effort into certain things and achieving a result which we could not achieve by direct effort. So instead of putting the effort into making something happen, we put it indirectly in here, and the fruit of that is that something happens. A few of you uh, men and women are marathon runners. Um, so we have some triathletes in the church. We have some people who've done the Ironman challenge. And you guys, if that's you, have my utmost respect, not because of your ability, but because of your effort that you put into training. A few years ago, a friend of mine, John Kirkby, who some of you will know, he uh, founded CAP, Christians Against Poverty, he ran 15 marathons in 15 days straight. It takes more than determination to do that. It takes training, it takes indirect effort. You need to eat certain things, you need to do certain exercises, you need to spend hours in certain forms of training, and if you do these things, your ability to achieve the end result grows. Every athlete starts out far less able than they later become if they regularly put that appropriate effort in. Some of you will know that nearly a year ago, I bought a punch bag and boxing gloves and started working with a boxing trainer. And you know, just to be clear, I never want to hit anybody, and I certainly do not want anyone to try and hit me. So basically, this is working with pads, and this is working with a heavy bag, which is in my garage. And the first time I had a training session with this guy, he's like a phenomenal guy, um, he didn't push me very hard because he could tell quite quickly, having done no exercise for a few years, that I was pretty unfit. And over the months, I've practiced on my bag at home and had sessions with him every couple of weeks. And initially, I was puffing and panting and sweating like I was going to die. And, but the more I've trained, the fitter I've become. And for a bit of fun, early on, I timed how many times I could hit the bag in a given time. And uh, I was slow and I got puffed out really quickly. Recently, I timed myself again and I, I really impressed myself. And I know this figure is accurate because I've timed it more than once. I managed to hit the bag 300 times in a minute. That's an average of five times a second sustained 
for a whole minute. At the end of the minute, I nearly died, but nevertheless. <laughs> now, if I had tried to do that without training to do that, it wouldn't have happened. And just like a marathon runner who hasn't trained, hasn't put the effort in along the way, but tries to run a marathon, trying to manifest these things we've talked about, trying to be a gracious person, trying to be grateful, trying to respond in the, the various ways we talked about, trying to have the right attitude towards ourselves and towards others, trying to be confident in God's provision won't work. We simply can't do it by trying. We need not so much to try to evidence these things I've talked about as to train. God evidently pours grace into our lives through channels, among which would be what are known as the spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines like the disciplines of a marathon runner and you know, eating right and doing all those things are those ways which have been tried and tested through history in which a believer grows in the experience of grace. John Wesley, the 18th century founder of Methodism, in one of his published sermons on grace, said this, by means of grace, I understand outward signs, words, or actions, ordained of God and appointed for this end, to be the ordinary channels whereby he might convey grace to men. Now, it's a bit long-winded and a bit old-fashioned language, but basically, do these things, spiritual disciplines, opens up channels where grace can flow into our lives. And the first two things that he lists in that sermon are prayer and reading, hearing, and meditating on the scriptures. Others through history have added others to that list, including solitude and silence, fasting, serving others, sacrificial giving, fellowship, and it's in those ways of training that we find we grow in grace. And I found it helpful as a perspective to think, you know, I should pray, I should read my Bible, I should fast, I should give, I should ought. You know, just living out of what you should and ought to do apparently leads to hardening of the arteries. So that's just not going to be good. But if you think, wow, if I do that, I'm opening up channels, more grace in my life, more experience of that overflowing to others. I think it just, it changes the perspective. My friend Rich Nathan said this, discipline speaks to people about drudgery, about works, about trying harder. Spiritual disciplines are the way we place ourselves before God so that he can work in us the life of the kingdom. Spiritual disciplines are the effort we put into place ourselves before God so that we can receive his transforming grace. Spiritual disciplines are the way we train for a marathon. It's not by trying that we get God, it's by training. If you're interested in reading more about uh, spiritual disciplines, I would recommend A Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, in which he writes this, a farmer is helpless to grow grain. All he can do is to provide the right conditions for the growing of grain. He cultivates the ground, he plants the seed, he waters the plants, and then natural forces of the earth take over and up comes the grain. This is the way it is with the spiritual disciplines. They are a way of sowing to the spirit. The spiritual disciplines, he says, are a means of receiving God's grace. They allow us to place ourselves before God 
so that he can transform us. Dallas Willard defines a discipline as any activity within our power that we engage in to enable us to do what we cannot do by direct effort. We grow in receiving God's grace by opening up the pipes, the channels through which grace can flow. And the more unblocked the tubes, the greater and more grace-filled our life becomes. Just as the pipes allow grace to flow into our life, they actually allow us also to pour out more grace. Now we can misunderstand a little bit what I'm talking about here and, and begin to strive to perform for God. We've got a list of things now we've got to do, added, you know, fasting and, and giving and serving and all that sort of thing. And uh, striving to perform for God, that would be the opposite of what I'm saying. That would actually be an evidence that we're not understanding and in touch with the grace of God. If, for instance, we think that the practice of regular fasting is legalism, something we should do in order to somehow earn God's approval, we've misunderstood the grace of God. But if we see these disciplines like fasting as conduits, pipes of his grace flowing into our lives, we may well choose to fast regularly as a means of grace. The more observant among you will have noticed that the first letter of each of my points forms an anagram, G, R, A, C, and E. And as you maybe leave tonight on your way home, if you're traveling with anybody, you might like to just remind yourself of those five points. Compete with each other to see if you can actually remember them all. Okay, and if they come up on the screen again, gratitude, response, attitude towards ourselves and towards others, confidence, and effort. Let me finish by reading you something in the front flap here of Philip Yancey's book. He writes this, Grace is the church's great distinctive. It's the one thing the world cannot duplicate and the one thing it craves above all else. For only grace can bring hope and transformation to a jaded world.